This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. A museum in Alabama discovered it is not compliant with the 1990 Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. So officials are just now repatriating some 4,000 objects, including human remains that had once been on public display. That's one of many recent institutions still working toward complying with the 30-year-old law. Nearly 900,000 items remain in institutions around the country. We'll get updates on the slow pace of repatriation right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. U.S. Interior Secretary Deb Holland recently traveled to northwest Montana to celebrate the first expansion of the National Wildlife Refuge System under the Biden administration. Aaron Bolton has more on the Lost Trail Conservation Area. The ceremony started with a song by Vernon Findlay of the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes. The Lost Trail Conservation Area is part of the CSKT's traditional territory. Both tribal and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service officials were in hand to celebrate the new conservation area, which will preserve public access to 38,000 acres of private lands to start. That protection can be expanded up to nearly three times that size through future land easement purchases. The conservation area neighbors the existing Lost Trail National Wildlife Refuge. Secretary Deb Holland commended efforts to establish the newest edition of the National Wildlife Refuge System, which protects public access to millions of acres of wildlands nationwide. Today's celebration is the culmination of a 20-year locally-led effort to conserve important big game corridors and recreational areas in this region. She added the area will also conserve endangered and threatened species like grizzly bears. For National Native News, I'm Aaron Bolton. The Navajo Nation is set to receive its first supply of monkeypox vaccines this week. The tribe advocated for the vaccine as part of preparedness efforts. Navajo Nation President Jonathan Nez talked about the vaccine Tuesday during a virtual town hall. We sent a letter to the White House, to the Department of Health and Human Services, letting them know that we need to have the vaccines for the monkeypox as soon as possible. And within a couple of weeks, we got the answer from the federal government and from the White House. Just the same thing we did with the vaccine for COVID-19. We advocated heavily. We sent the letter and we got the vaccines the same day as everybody did throughout the United States. So that's uh, good news that we're gonna get the monkeypox. No confirmed cases here on the Navajo Nation of monkeypox thus far. Vaccines are gonna be available. You know, we just need to be safe. Nez says the tribe wants to keep monkeypox out and will be using the same protocols for monkeypox as they do for COVID-19, which includes a number of public health emergency orders. The Navajo Nation was hit hard by COVID-19. Captain Brian Johnson with the Navajo Area Indian Health Service says the arrival of vaccines were an important part of efforts to fight COVID-19, and he says the arrival of monkeypox vaccines will help the Navajo Nation be prepared. We know that we'll have that protective measure of having the Genios 
uh, vaccine here on site, which is very, very important uh, for us. So looking forward to having that. And then that will be utilized to um, you know the, the providers, local providers with all the healthcare, the tribal healthcare organizations, the Indian Health Service health facilities. The providers will um, be the ones who, who work with patients and determine who, who might be at most need of those early uh, vaccinations or vaccines if, if needed. The tribe is also preparing for COVID boosters, which will be ready for the fall and winter season. Unofficial results from Oklahoma's Tuesday primary election show Congressman Mark Wayne Mullen won the Republican runoff for a U.S. Senate seat. Mullen, Cherokee Nation, was first elected to serve Oklahoma's 2nd Congressional District in 2012. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the Colorado Plateau Foundation. Supporting Native-led initiatives protecting lands, waters, and cultures by building networks, community, and organizational capacity. Proposals accepted through September 1st at coloradoplateaufoundation.org. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. It's taking decades for museums, universities, and archival institutions to return ancestral remains and sacred or funerary items that they are legally required to hand over. 30 years since the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act was signed into law, hundreds of thousands of items, including human remains, stay in the hands of institutions. Some museums and research efforts remain ignorant of the law. Others are putting up bureaucratic hurdles for tribes insisting on repatriation. The Alabama Department of Archives and History just started repatriation of Native items this month. Fort Peck tribes are fighting to have items returned from the University of Montana and Missoula, which insists it retains ownership despite NAGPRA. We'll get a progress check on some recent successes and ongoing repatriation, repatriation barriers today. We invite you to be a part of our conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Our first guest is on the line. Shannon O'Glaughlin is the CEO of the Association on American Indian Affairs. She's Choctaw. Shannon, welcome back to the show. Hi, Sean. How are you? I'm doing really well. It's wonderful to talk with you again. And Let's get into this conversation. About four years ago, the state of Alabama realized they were not in compliance with NAGPRA and are now in talks with two dozen tribes. What do we need to know about that process and current repatriation efforts of other tribes? Well, it seems that repatriation over the last four years has really progressed and increased. And I, and I want to talk about why I, I think that is a little bit. And I think it's because tribes have been really 
um, leveraging their relationships with museums and institutions and government agencies to bring ancestors and other items home. And so I think the result, why we're seeing it all in the news, while we're seeing so much of it, is because of the advocacy that's coming from Indian country to support repatriation efforts. What's happening with Alabama is nothing unusual, actually. There are many institutions that have even provided inventories of the ancestors who were sitting in boxes in their basements um, for a long time. And um, there are many uh, institutions who have had changeover of staff. And because of that, um, folks are re-looking really at their relationships with, with Native Americans and their compliance with NAGPRA a lot differently. So we're really happy that we've got new people who are educated in NAGPRA, who are going and working for museums and institutions, and they want to build positive working relationships with tribes, and they want to do better for their museum and for the public in what they're really supposed to be doing in educating the public about natives as we want that to happen. So there's a lot of great stuff going on. Um, the National NAGPRA program is also being extremely active. They've hired a new civil penalties uh, person who are looking specifically at compliance issues with NAGPRA. So I think some museums may be running a little bit scared right now because they're seeing the writing on the wall. They need to do something, and they are. Um, the reason why everyone's saying it is so slow um, is because of the institution's uh, uh, failures, really, to just comply with, with the law. Shannon, please remind us who, again, is required to repatriate items under NAGPRA? Any federal agency or a museum, and a museum is defined really broadly under NAGPRA. It's any entity that has Native American collections. So if you're an entity that has um, arrowheads and other things that you've, you've been digging up all over your, your area and you create some sort of um, uh, museum, or a local exhibit, uh, you may be an institution that has to comply with NAGPRA, especially <laughs> where you've received federal funds. So that's always the little, uh, the little uh, trigger to require you to comply with NAGPRA is uh, the receipt of federal funds. And we know there's been many entities that have, are receiving uh, special funds through, through the different uh, coronavirus pandemic actions from the government and so um, they are um, uh, there's more institutions that have to comply with NAGPRA now than there has been in the past. Okay. Now is it true that the Smithsonian is exempt from NAGPRA? Why is that? Yes. Yes. Well because they have their own law. In fact a law that predates NAGPRA. So the National Museum of the American Indian Act was created to create the National Museum of the American Indian and bring it under the Smithsonian Institution. And, and what happened is, is um, amazing advocates, um, including the Morningstar Institute and the Association on American Indian Affairs and the Native American Rights Fund, worked together to advocate for repatriation legislation within the NMAI Act. So they were actually the first ones to have a NAGPRA-like um, law 
so Smithsonian is complying with their NAGPRA-type law, and NAGPRA was created to apply to everybody else. Okay. Now, some of these repatriation efforts can take many years. And, and for example, there's a museum in a, a rural part of Massachusetts uh, holding on to items purportedly from the Wounded Knee Massacre over on Pine Ridge. And those tribes have fought since NAGPRA was enacted to have those items returned. Is there any progress on that? Uh Yes, actually, from what I hear, there is progress. Um, I, I believe there's still a long way to go. Unfortunately, those those items were treated with arsenic and other uh, pesticides and have not been curated properly. Um, so it's unclear how those repatriations are going to move forward. And it's also unclear if, if the Berry Museum um, in Massachusetts is admitting that they need to comply with NAGPRA, or if they're still saying they're not complying with NAGPRA and they're just going to repatriate however they want to. So um, we are aware that they have collections from at least 30 different Native nations. So uh, even beyond um, those nations that were involved in the Wounded Knee Massacre, um, they have other objects as well. Well, Shannon, I mean, this all seems pretty cut and dried in terms of a okay, federal agency or this pretty wide definition of what a museum is that has native cultural items. So I'm a little confused. I mean, what are these main barriers that museums and other institutions are putting up to prevent repatriation, even after 30 years of NAGPRA? Yeah, can I say the R word? Um, <laughs> that would be racism. Okay. <laughs> The R word racism. So, so, and 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 let's go back in history a bit. So, Native peoples and their bodies and everything that uh, was part of who we are has been uh, taken away, has been dispossessed from us, and that includes um, our religious and cultural practices, our languages. All of those things were outlawed, and so as uh, colonization progressed. Uh, from east to west, um, everything that stood in the colonizer's way was taken, and it was often uh, uh, used to make a profit um, or uh, through scientific study uh, to try to figure out where did these Native Americans come from because um, they weren't talked about in the Bible. So um, there was a lot of, uh, quote-unquote, scientific curiosity about who Native people were and how they got here. Uh, so uh, there were, you know, orders from um, uh, the Surgeon General and others to collect Native bodies so that they could be studied. Um, and along with that came, you know, funerary objects. And, and uh, from an artistic point of view, um, non-Natives thought they were beautiful types of items, and so they became part of collections and museums. They've been taken all over the world and they've been sold on market and are still sold on market today. In fact, the Santa Fe Indian market is uh, often used by collectors and dealers to do dealings behind the scenes of very sacred and sensitive items, um, uh, you know, to keep the market going. Um, oh, it's, uh, okay. So there's a... Yeah, so there's a long history of 
uh, taking away our bodies, taking away our cultural and religious items, and taking them to market or putting them in a museum or an institution to study. So we're left here with um, probably millions of, of ancestors and items all over the world um, that have been taken without any free prior or informed consent. And so tribes are left with the burden of calling them back, calling the ancestors and sacred items back. And so it's not only, you know, tribes have a hard time with uh, capacity regarding, you know, resources, human resources, and having the people um, available to, mm -hmm. to uh, reach out and work with those museums and institutions. Um, but it's also emotionally and spiritually um, uh, re-triggering of, of the intergenerational trauma that, that we've all suffered from. So this is extremely hard and sensitive work, and we are constantly having to face um, people from museums and institutions who think that they have a right to study us without their free, without our free prior informed consent. Okay. And um, from just the mere fact that they hold these items and nothing more. We're speaking with Shannon O'Loughlin. She is the CEO of the Association on American Indian Affairs and she's giving us an overview of NAGPRA and some recent efforts of tribes to repatriate cultural items from museums and other institutions. Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848, if you want to join this discussion. We've got more guests, more conversation coming up on the other side. Stay with us. Among the outlaws terrorizing the Wild West after the Civil War were a handful of Native American criminals and gang leaders. They often had colorful names like Cherokee Bill and the Apache Kid. Many were ruthless criminals. Some others were responding to colonizing pressures. We'll get to know some of the Native outlaws on the next Native America Calling. If you're hurting in your relationship or have been affected by sexual violence, Strongheart's Native Helpline is a no-charge, 24-7, confidential and anonymous domestic, dating, and sexual violence helpline for Native Americans. Help is available by calling 1-844-7-NATIVE or by clicking on the chat icon on strongheartshelpline.org. This program is supported by Strongheart's Native Helpline. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're focusing on recent repatriation efforts today. Is your tribe working with an institution to get remains or funerary or sacred items back? Give us a call. We want to hear about it. Join a conversation. 1-800-996-2848. 1-800-996-2848. Of course, you can always connect with us through social media as well. So please, we really want to hear from our guests and also our listeners today. Get your feedback. Our next guest is joining us from Poplar, Montana. Diane Yupi is the Fort Peck Tribal Cultural Resource Director and Tribal Historic Preservation Officer. She's Lakota, Dakota, and Nakota. Diane, thanks for joining us. Hi, Sean. Hi, Diane. I, I want to get an update here. Last month, you and your team traveled to Missoula to regain possession of a cultural 
uh, collection of items. And, and what can you tell us about those items and the process of repatriating them? Uh, so to rewind a little bit, the Four Pack Tribes has had multiple attempts in, in repatriating these. Uh, there was multiple um, excuses from University of Montana why they couldn't do it. Uh, it had to do with low staff and um, so forth. So the the last time that um, we spoke with the collections manager or the one that's in the position, um, this was supposed to be just a visit and just to see the collections. Um, but it wasn't until that we got there um, we realized that there's other ways to go about NAGPRA, you know, and if, if we're getting more of a, a fight to get our stuff back, you know, then um, someone's not in compliance of the, the federal law. And I, I'm sort of confused at how a, such a black and white language um, can be manipulated or um, not followed, um, and that's acceptable. So uh, we went through with um, our tribal law and our tribal protocols, which is stating that the museum or the collections um, have illegally um, or are illegally holding our items that belong to Fort Peck tribes or our affiliated members. So we took them um, in that in that way, uh, but it was possible for U of M to create a immediate transfer of control agreement, you know, during that time. So I know that there are ways that, that it's possible to get these back faster. And we just showed the world, you know, that it was possible in that way. And I understand not every institution um, has that ability, but it doesn't mean that um, excuses can hold people back anymore. Um, there's a way and, and there's a, a time frame that these need to come back to our community, especially for community healing and to teach our babies, you know, that uh, we're not historic, that we're very much alive today and use these items. Now, is this your first effort at a, at a repatriation of items for, for you, or have you done this before? Uh, I've done this before. I've been in this position for four years, but uh, like I've stated before, my dad was a previous director in TIPO for the Fort Peck Tribes, and I've traveled and participated with him in this. Uh, I believe it was in his hopes of molding me to become this position someday. I'm sure he'd be really proud of you, and I want to congratulate you on this success. But um, I also you know, you know, want to make note of the fact that the university still holds a, a large number of, of your tribe's cultural items. So what about those other items and, and efforts to repatriate those as well? Uh, well, we've just had um, uh, some news that there seems to be some talk about a, a NAGPRA coordinator coming about um, through some funding efforts of U of M. So uh, the NAGPRA coordinator will be advertised and, and hopefully filled within, you know, this fall. So um, we'd be working with that person for, from U of M. Um, the Montana TIPO sit on the collections board, um, and I believe that was just recently started. So there'll be some more continuous um, communal effort between all of us um, to make sure that that happens. 
I I did talk with uh, my other brother and sister Tippos and of Montana, and I know that a lot of the collections, um, some tribes aren't able to grab those because they don't have a facility or an institution to hold those. And and I totally understand. Um, we've we've also been in a, um, a verbal agreement with our Nakota relatives in Fort Belknap. You know that. Um, should we need to take items that are Nakota affiliated, we would take those, but we'd also have an open communication and, and transport to Balnap if um, they don't have the facility um, later in the future. And what will the tribe do with these items that were repatriated last month? They are currently within our museum archive facility. Uh, we are currently close to the public because of covid restrictions and under the Fort Peck Tribe's uh, health order. Um, <clears throat> but a lot of the items are within our archive, uh, they and uh, away from most staff uh, because they've been um, exposed to lead and arsenic um, chemicals. Uh, so it'll take us some time before those can ever be exposed again or um, out into the public eye. Now, Obviously, there's been some pushback there from the university. Um, there's been some history there in terms of them not communicating uh, as well as they could and some of the statements they've made. But but right now, uh, how strong is that relationship with, with the University of Montana-Missoula? And how confident are you going forward that you're going to be able to work together to repatriate more of these items? I believe it, it, it'll get better. Um the, the staff that they have there now um, was wonderful to work with while we were there. Um, I don't believe it's appropriate to say they're fully supportive, um, uh, uh, but they were there helping us um, whatever we needed um, and in their efforts to making an immediate transfer of control. Um, it really surprised me. Uh, but my staff and I, we, we came determined to bring something home. We weren't expecting to bring everything home, uh, but we were determined to bring something home with us uh, to know that that would be in agreement with U of M, um, that they would follow through with the rest of their collections and that we would come for the rest of our stuff. You know, but uh, I believe this, you know, was a small push into getting uh, somebody in that position um, to coordinate the rest of the NAGPRA collections um, to us and other tribes. So I, I believe it was something that was needed. It was a, it was a good revolutionary spark um, from my staff and I that um, ignited this conversation and, and a little bit of action, you know, whether it was um, something that they had anticipated or, or wanted to go in that, that kind of way or not. Um, I think that we're going to have a, a better relationship. And uh, the new provost at U of M um, will be taking steps towards um, helping us communicate better, um, tribes mm -hmm. and the U of M staff. Now, the university still contends. They still say that these items are, are state property. What's your response to that? I feel that there needs to be a little bit more education on, on NAGPRA. Um, especially how people got the items. 
And like I, I've stated before, you know, regardless if they don't want to follow NAGPRA law, um, they say they want to follow NAGPRA and that they're doing their best intentions and that it takes a lot of work, but yet they can um, state that it's uh, state-owned. You know, I think that there needs to be a lot of education um, about what is NAGPRA, um, who is entitled to NAGPRA, you know, and who needs to be um, the ones that are consulted on with NAGPRA. Um, but again, you know, if if a institution doesn't want to follow the federal law, uh, Fort Peck Tribes does still follow our traditional protocols, uh, which do state you cannot take items from burials or or any of our sacred sites, um, and that's from hundreds of years ago. That traditional uh, protocols uh, we still continue to follow, and people are be held, people will be held accountable, and we will take our items back. Diane, you talk about the need for better education, a better understanding of NAGPRA. Whose responsibility is that to provide that education so everybody, all parties, are better informed of what the law means? I believe that's a, it's a multiple street there. Um, people who hold these titles, uh, who are responsible for uh, the duties of following the NAGPRA law, um, I feel that once you're in that title, you know, you should already be an expert. Hold the responsibilities and, and continue the education outreach and so forth. But... But in my experience, it seems that tribes, because we're the ones fighting harder to get these items back, we seem to be the one teaching these people about what their titles and positions are. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't think I fully know who's, who's the person who is supposed to be doing it. I can assume that it's the ones that are in these positions that have these responsibilities and duties, yet it seems to fall on, on the tribe's voices um, not that, not that we don't have to educate and do outreach, um, uh, because we definitely do within our offices, but, but, um, when it comes from us, it, it comes in a, a revolutionary voice, um, that seems to be, uh, in a, a fighting movement rather than, uh, gentle educating someone about the law or in like in, say in the universities or the the school systems where they start talking about it. Um, but yes, I believe it is up to the the responsibility and the duties of, of people who hold these titles that deal with NAGPRA. Okay. I want to ask Shannon to chime in on that as well. Would you agree with that, Shannon, that it's uh, the institution's responsibility to uh, educate and inform and, and be compl- to understand all these compliance factors and, and other issues related to NAGPRA? Oh, it's absolutely the institution's responsibility. I mean, if you're driving down the street and you're speeding and a cop pulls you over, um, uh, you can't claim ignorance of the law to get out of that ticket. The same thing with NAGPRA. Institution cannot claim ignorance to get out of this federal mandate. Um, and it's, it's really unusual that you have a state uh, like what uh, Diane was talking about here, that is claiming they have ownership, that these items are state property, because NAGPRA is absolutely clear 
that if if the, an institution wants to go down that road, they have to prove it. They have to prove, and and the wording in NAGPRA is absolutely beautiful about mm-hmm. this. They have to prove that they had consent at the time the item was taken from the appropriate authorized person or council or um, uh, chief or whomever it was to take that item away from the nation because NAGPRA cultural items, they're specifically defined as being items that are owned by the tribal nation. Right, It's right. not owned. It's not individual personal property. Well, Shannon, going back to, you know, Diane mentioned the same thing, you know, it's pretty clear. I mean, we've talked about this. Anybody that looks at the law, it's, it's pretty cut and dried, but yet there continue to be these, these holdouts and these people that, that fight back. And are there any timeframes uh, associated with NAGPRA for these institutions to, to comply? Because here again, we talked about those folks up in Pine Ridge fighting for 30 years. Well, Are there, there is a 90-day – I'm sorry. Uh, no, I'm Sean, sorry. Go ahead, Shannon. I interrupted. No, no, go ahead. You said 90 days. I'm sorry. <laughs> there is a 90-day requirement that once a tribe uh, requests repatriation that the institution has, has 90 days to repatriate expeditiously. Okay. Let's take a caller now. We have Regina listening on Keeley in Pine Ridge, South Dakota. Regina, thanks for calling in today. Yeah, this um, I'm calling from Oglala, um, and I have something to say about the 38 that were hung in uh, Mankato back in uh, 1862, I think it was. And um, see, the people didn't have a chance to claim the bodies; they they weren't released to to the tribal members. But uh, what happened with the bodies? They um, the city probably has records of this, that Mayo came with wagons and he took the bodies for whatever purposes that he had with it and uh, started his medical uh, facility up there, but mainly probably to study the bodies. And so I, I kind of have reason to believe that a lot of the skeletons uh, hanging in museums around the country, maybe some of them came from the Mayo Clinic. At least that's what I, I sort of believe, because when you donate your body, you know, they get the meat off your body and and so forth and so on. After they study it and so forth, they put the skeletons back together. Regina, thanks for calling in with that question or that comment about the Dakota 38. And, and Shannon, I'm going to go ahead and let you respond. Um, what do you know about um, the remains of the Dakota 38 who were hung in Mankato all those years ago? Are those remains in have they been identified in any of these collections that we're talking about today or museums i'm not absolutely sure i think that's the first time i heard that the mayo clinic may be involved in holding uh uh, the mankato um individuals and so that would be an interesting conversation to have with them because they would uh they would have to comply under nagpro because the mayo clinic is obviously in receipt of federal funds um, since 1990, I'm sure. So, um, but no, I, I was not aware of that. So um, I, I will become more aware here, I bet, in the next 48 hours. <laughs> okay. 
Uh, great question. We got another caller on the line, but we're going to have to hold off until after break. But I, I want to go back to Diane. And Diane, you, you shared earlier that, that your family has been engaged in repatriation efforts for, for many, many years. And I want to ask you, what did your father teach you that prepared you for these battles that you're fighting today with regard to repatriating and reclaiming cultural items of your tribe? Um, well, he was 21 years old, uh, in 73 at Wounded Knee, uh, during the American Indian Movement. So having growing up with him, uh, he was a single parent, but having growing up with him, um, you can imagine the conversations that we had at the dinner table, um, and, uh, the conversations that I've, I've had to hear him have with federal agencies and also being on Keepers of the Treasure, just his whole, um, his whole work history has been of, of revolutionary uh, um, activism for Native American tribes um, or Native American rights. So uh, he's been molding me with just conversations uh, since I was a little girl. We're speaking with Diane Yupi. She is a tribal preservation officer up in Poplar, Montana. If you've got a question, give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. We'll be right back. Program support by Amerind. For 35 years, Indian Country has put its trust in Amerind, providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities, protecting tribal sovereignty, and keeping dollars in Indian Country are Amerind's priorities. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at Amerind.com. That's A M E R I N D.com. Welcome back to Native America Calling. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. It's not too late to join our conversation about repatriation. Is your tribe working to reclaim historical objects from a museum or an archive? Are you concerned about how non-Native institutions are handling Native remains or sacred objects? Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. We've got another caller on the line right now, Tom who's also listening on Keeley in Wounded Knee, South Dakota. Tom, thanks for calling. How are you all doing? Good to be on here. It's good to hear the information going out like this here in Lakota land. My question is to NAGPRA, how can a community claim what's been found here in October 2020 there were remains found here from a construction lagoon that was supposed to be part of another uh, housing cluster here. But our, our dog, my niece's dog, uh, found a skull where they were digging. So they stopped the construction, and they found more remains. And it's been two years now. We got all these guys with highly educated degrees, 150 years of education, but not one can tell us what's going on here. Who do these bones belong to? Where, where did they come from? Who, you know, because I live here in Wundini. My grandmother's descendant survived the massacre. His name was Toka Kokikpapi. Enemy fears him. He survived the massacre with three bullets in his back. He still saved his pregnant wife and his two girls. That's how I came to be here with me and my children and my grandchildren. But what I'm I'm really curious and I'm kind of frustrated about is you got NACPRA here, you got NACPRA all over the place, 
But here in Wounded Knee, where this bad massacre happened, the biggest shooting in the U.S. history happened here, not one can tell, none of my community, even my elders, even my mother, what's going on here? Who do these bones belong to? Because you know, it's like a secret. And, okay. and like an elder told me this morning, the reason why we're not being told anything is because of money. Money. Money's been handed down from whoever it was. And now, now I heard, I'm hearing it's from IHS. IHS is getting funding from these remains that were found here, and now nothing's being told. Now, okay. I don't know what's going on. Tom, I, Tom, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just want to ask you, do you know where, okay, obviously these remains were found. They were uncovered during a, a construction project of some sort there in Pine Ridge. Do you know where these remains are now that you're so concerned about? Who's holding them? Virginia. They're in Virginia. Okay, let's go ahead and ask Diane. Diane, it's a really good question that, that Tom asks. Uh, somebody there at the community, these these remains were found relatively recently uh, there in the community through some sort of a construction project, and then they were taken away, and then now they're not getting in for any information. What would be your, your advice to Tom and other communities like that that are facing similar challenges? Uh, well, I'm really surprised because if it's on the Indian Reservation, then they're I'm assuming that Oglala, and unless they haven't yet, and this is in no disrespect to the tribe, um, unless the the tribe have a a NAGPRA ordinance or a cultural resource ordinance um, that protects these bones, um, but I'm assuming that it would give them jurisdiction. So even like the TIPO position or um, one of the director positions would be able to take those. Um, just real quick, I want to share, um, should that instance happen um, on the Fort Peck Indian Reservation, the sheriff's department, well, all four sheriff's departments here um, that are on the, the reservation, I have a close working relationship with them. So if we ever do find human remains, the entire project stops until I'm notified, and then we identify whether the bones are 50 years or older, then they get reburied as a as a NAGPRA situation. Should they be uh, 50 years or younger or seem um, pretty recent, then they go to the sheriff's office and then they send them away for collections um, in case it's a missing missing person, which we've had um, successful um, accounts for um, in in locating people who have been missing recently. Um, but I believe that there needs to there should be a good conversation, a good healthy discussion on how those can can work out better for um, uh, remains being found on the Indian Reservation. Um, I'd be happy to talk with anybody else more about our culture resource ordinance as well, or you can look online at fortpecktribes.org. Diane, thanks for that answer to Tom's question. Let's move along now to our third guest on the show today. Joining us from Montgomery, Alabama is Steve Murray. He's the director of the Alabama Department of Archives and History. Steve, welcome to the show. Hello, Sean. Thank you for the invitation. Steve, um, what prompted the state of Alabama to begin working with tribes on repatriation efforts? Well, as uh, Shannon said earlier, it was very much about uh, tribal uh, instigation and, and uh, coming to us and asking questions. We had done some early work in the early 1990s uh, that we thought satisfied our obligations under NAGPRA at the time. 
Uh, and then in late 2017 and 2018, we began hearing from some federally recognized tribes with inquiries about our collections. And we had a um, relatively new staff member, an archaeologist who was responsible for our collections management at the time, who started taking a closer look at this and what had been done back in the 90s and realized that we were, in fact, not in compliance. And she brought that up to our museum division, and they brought it to me, and we um, affirmed her conclusion, and that decision was, uh, or that finding was affirmed by our board of trustees, and that set us in motion in working to attain compliance. Now, what are some goals that your department has set with regard to this larger repatriation effort? Well, back in 2018, our, our board uh, decided that uh, in recognizing that we weren't in compliance with NAGPRA, that we wanted to do this not merely to attain compliance with the letter of the law, but also to work in the spirit of NAGPRA. And our beyond so beyond compliance, our, our objectives also include uh, building better appreciations for Native people's perspectives on repatriation, building sustained partnerships with tribes, uh, but also being a resource to other institutions in Alabama, smaller institutions in particular who may not have staffing and other resources to understand their own obligations under the law and to try to build a, a healthier NAGPRA practitioner community within our state. Now, Steve, what's your response when you hear about what's going on up there in Montana? We heard from Diane earlier, and here you've got the University of Montana saying, okay, well, this is state property. Um you represent the state of Alabama. How does that how does that um, sit with you when when a state entity like that makes a statement like that regarding cultural items of Native American significance? Sure. Well, I have to be careful not to speak on behalf of any other institutions. Uh, I, I know Sean and and I think Shannon and Diane have spoken to this in, in their own way already, you know, inertia is a powerful thing, and it can be difficult to uh, overcome that inertia even when there is a responsibility required by law and, and ethics uh, to, to make changes. Um, in our particular circumstance, we happen to know a great deal about how our collection was developed, uh, where the, the ancestral remains and funerary objects were excavated and, and how that collection grew over time. And it was very clear to us under the terms of NAGPRA that we had a responsibility to act and to begin the process of working with tribal partners on, on repatriation. Well, what more can you tell us about these items that um, are involved with these repatriation efforts? Sure. Our, our organization was created in 1901. We are a state agency. And a few years after that, in 1909, an organization called the Alabama Anthropological Society was created with leadership from uh, our founding director and another staff member here who would later become director. With uh, These are mostly middle-class um, white men from the central Alabama area who were members of the AAS, and they were archaeology enthusiasts. They were not uh, trained, and of course, the entire field of archaeology was still emerging and professionalizing in the early 20th century. But they knew a good bit about Alabama history and about the sites where uh, indigenous peoples had lived prior to removal and displacement in Alabama. And those locations were not hard to find 100 years ago. There were still there was local knowledge of those locations and plenty of physical evidence of where those might be. 
and that organization would go out on weekend excursions uh, with the intent of trying to document what they thought was a vanishing culture and a vanishing history. Uh, we know now that that's, that, that was not true, uh, that those, those cultures are, are vibrant and alive. But at the time, they thought that they were collecting information about um, native culture, native history, and intending to preserve that information. They were students themselves of, 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 of culture and had the intent of preserving that material. And so over the span of about 30 years, a significant portion of their, their collections were donated to the Alabama Department of Archives and History and have been here ever since. We're speaking with Steve Murray. He's with the Alabama Department of Archives and History, and they've just started the repatriation of Native items this month. We've got another caller on the line, Mary, listening on KIPI in Newtown, North Dakota. Mary, hello. Hello, this is Mary Baker. I am the um, NECRA officer for MHA Nation. I want to give a, a shout-out to Diane Yupi. I'm a big fan. Um, also, a shout-out to other fellow Tippos that might be listening. Um, I just kind of wanted to make a comment and bring an idea forward for creating a consortium dealing with NECRA um, situations for institutions, state agencies, federal agencies, because all across Indian country, I feel like, you know, there's those of us that are stepping up to these positions to carry out duties of NEGPRA, but also should, I feel, we should be working more collectively together as tribes united. I just kind of wanted to plant that seed in other people's ears because when dealing with NEGPRA situations, um, having to prove that these items belong to a certain tribe society um, or member it comes uh, it comes to be really difficult to handle and just the fact that you know so many of our ancestors our relatives our tribes have faced different um, adversities to eliminate how we operate as peoples I just kind of feel like um, bringing that idea forward uh, what do you guys <laughs> You guys, is there like advocacy for something like that? Okay, let's go ahead and have Diane respond to that. It was Mary Baker up in Newtown, North Dakota. Diane, Mary is is calling for for tribes to work together collectively. It sounds like in in some sort of um, combined, concerted effort to to work towards some of these repatriation efforts. Um, what's your thought on that? Is that happening right now? And if so, in what capacity? I believe it could happen a little bit more and stronger, especially with the unaffiliated remains um, and tribes just working to get unaffiliated remains uh, to either the closest tribe or, um, like she said, the Tippos. Um, a lot of the Tippos have have this jurisdiction uh, for NAGPRA talk within their communities. Um, if there's an agreement, um, possibly drafting letters to support other tribes getting these unaffiliated objects um, or ancestors' tools um, to a tribe that um, can take them or is willing to take them or is closest to the area that they were uncovered. Um, 
I feel that that's a, a more proactive way rather than waiting for um, the institution to say, well, we need to do more research or get grant funding or or uh, wait for something else to come along to show us or tell us, you know, what uh, affiliation this does have. Um, and I, I think that that could cut down um, either on the funding or the wait time um, when tribes are more unified in and just getting what they can um, in agreement with each other and um, seeking homes for these these uh, ancestors uh, and their tools or belongings. Let's go back to Steve uh, in Alabama. Steve, we've got about another minute before we have to wrap up the show, but it sounds like um, you folks are really making a lot of progress down there in Alabama. And I want to ask you, what advice do you have for other institutions for how to identify and begin these discussions with tribes to understand these collections and work to comply with NAGPRA? Well, internally, I think it's important for uh, institutions to educate their uh, their boards, their leadership. And, and this proceeds much more smoothly, I think, if there is deep and broad buy-in uh, throughout an organization. But I think also approaching potential tribal partners with the same spirit of openness and a desire to collaborate. And we've seen just such a, a situation here in the Southeast that Diane was just describing and Mary was calling for. Uh, the tribes with whom we are working are interested in establishing kind of broad cultural affiliation and with groups of tribes working together on joint claims for materials that have uh, clear connections to a kind of a broad array of uh, tribal culture um, over over several centuries. So I, I, I think it's important for staff to seek that buy-in from their leaders, for the leaders to make that commitment, and then you do have to uh, put resources towards it in terms of financial uh, financial resources and staff time in order to carry that out successfully. Well, folks, that is going to be the end of our conversation on repatriation. I want to thank our three guests today, Shannon O'Loughlin, Diane Yupi, and Steve Murray, as well as our numerous callers today. Uh, great updates and insights on repatriation efforts among tribes and Native nations. Join us tomorrow for a historical look at Native American outlaws and gunslingers from the Wild West. I'm Sean Spruce. Thanks for listening. My name is Asad. When I was 19, my mom was diagnosed with colorectal cancer because she smoked. My tip is, find things to be thankful for. I'm thankful she quit smoking. I'm thankful for the nurses who taught me how to check her IV and to manage her medication. And I'm thankful for every day we have together because nothing is guaranteed, especially for us. The people you love are worth quitting for. You can quit. For free help, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. With over 40,000 organizations trying to help military veterans, it can be hard to find the right information. That's why AARP brings together valuable resources to help navigate veterans' options, including no-charge veteran employment and fraud prevention resources, caregiving tools, and access to discounts. AARP is on a mission to support veterans. More at aarp.org veterans. AARP supports this program. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation. 
and native nonprofit media organizations. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.